What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've been bringing you coverage on the fight against ATL Cop City for some time now. Today, we're going to give some updates on what's happening and some new information about the state's tactic to prosecute activists while smearing the name of the person they murdered. We are joined this morning by Asia Arnold, an Atlanta-based journalist and founding editor of local outlet Mainline. Her reporting on Atlanta's Cop City project has been featured in The Intercept, Vice, and The Appeal, where her latest is titled Atlanta Police Target Bail Fund Organizers and Latest Crack down on Stop Cop City Movement. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Kat. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me back on your show. Absolutely. Thanks for coming back. Asia, I think my listeners are pretty clear about what Cop, uh, Cop City is and that there's been you know, this ongoing fight to stop it. But I'm wondering, before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today, if you could just walk us through some of the important milestones as of late. I mean, including uh, the Atlanta City Council's willful ignoring of the public's demand to put Cop City on the ballot. Sure. Uh, just this morning, I was working on an op-ed for another publication, Mondo Eyes, drawing connections between repression against pro-Palestine um, liberation fighters and what's been happening against organizers and activists and, frankly, civilians in the South Cop City movement in Atlanta. And just giving kind of like a bullet point list of what has happened in the past, I know, two, almost two and a half years since the legislation to approve this deal between the Atlanta Police Foundation and the city was introduced is kind of mind boggling. <laughs> um, I mean, the milestones are that in June 2021, a city council person who actually represents the poorest and the, um, you know, the has the highest black and brown population in the city, District 12, um, introduced legislation for this land deal between the Atlanta Police Foundation and the city of 381 acres of forested land for $10 a year. Um, introduced that in June 2021, was met with immediate and fierce, um, nearly unanimous opposition. Uh, there was a record-breaking 17 hours of public comment that city council member um, refused to listen to. Um, it only took about like three months for it to be passed, which was such a swift process. There were multiple EPA violations. A lot of regulations were not observed and followed in the passing of this deal. I want to make that very clear. So there's about um, there's multiple lawsuits pending against the city and police foundation for that. Uh, there was a referendum effort to put Cop City on the ballot. The city has refused to verify over 116,000 signatures because of a technicality in an appeals court in the 11th Circuit. And then, of course, we have the police murder of Manuel Tortiguita Tehran, who is a 26-year-old queer activist who autopsy showed was uh, sitting down, likely with their hands up, no gunpowder residue on their hands when police shot them 13 or 14 times, leaving 57 bullet wounds. Tortiguita was the first ever known U.S. climate activist to be killed by police in U.S. soil, and yet we still see very minimal discussion um, around that police killing, and the conversation continues to be about supposed terrorists um, who are really just activists resisting the building of this facility, uh, which is a dangerous completion that we're also seeing in regards to Israel-Palestine. But I'll pause there uh, because I think that's 
more than enough for listeners to chew and reflect on. Yeah, uh, a few state tarot roundups ago, and I can't remember which outlet did it, but there was some polling that was done of Atlanta at large. And I'm just wondering, cause, you know, the activists and the activist community is one thing, but can you talk about like the temperature of Atlanta at large around Cobb City? I mean, the temperature at large from where I sit, and as someone who's been reporting on it for a long time and is also an Atlanta native, um, Atlantans do not want Cop City um, here. And one thing that's important to realize is that this land, uh, Wilani Forest, where they have started to build it, resides in unincorporated Cobb County, which is a predominantly Black area. It's also um, a low-income area. Atlanta has the largest racial wealth inequality gap in the United States. Um, and in this, it is in this neighborhood where it's being built, and yet because it's in unincorporated Cobb County, um, these people do not have representation by the city of Atlanta, but the city of Atlanta owns this um, particular parcel of land. Um, so the temperature of like those residents is that um, for one, a lot of times they weren't aware. It was only because of activists that people became aware of this issue uh, because the city was going to keep it buried as long as they possibly could behind closed doors. Um, right, which is why but, it moves so fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, if, if it okay. weren't for the reporting of Mainline like, and other local outlets, we just would not have, they would have kept this hidden. Well, we thank you for your reporting. All right, I want to get into the meat of, of why we have you on the air today. We've got 61 cop city activists fake, facing RICO charges. Um, inside of the context you just laid out, November 6th, the charged activists turned themselves in. Describe the scene for my listeners. Um, describe the scene of the RICO charges? No, the, on November 6th, okay. when the activists turned themselves in and the community support... Oh, yes. Um, Thank you. Sorry, I broke up. Um, Yeah, November 6th outside of the Fulton County Courthouse was actually a beautiful display of the resistance against Cop City. Um, I was there on the ground and there's um, such a beautiful and joyful resilience in this movement. And there's also, you know, a very powerful queerness of this movement. (laughs) And it's hard to not notice that a lot of these defendants are queer people. Um, organizers unfurled a red carpet for defendants to walk through and like a little entryway to go into the courthouse. There were over a hundred supporters outside holding signs saying free Palestine and stop cop city and drop the charges. Um, people were wearing t-shirts that said, put me on the Rico, uh, kind of tongue in cheek response about how ridiculous the Rico charges are. Um, and then there were very powerful speakers that were um, delivering very emotional statements about the dangers and the precedents that these charges are setting for us nationally. And then I'm pulling this straight from your article that then on November 15th, prosecutors had prepared, as you call it, some public relations tactics of their own. Please talk about one of their first motions. Right, so on December, or I'm sorry, November 15th, when, a, when discovery started for the RICO trials, the states, one of their first motions, if not their very first, was to admit the alleged personal diary of Manuel Tortuguita Tehran, the um, activist I mentioned who was killed by police this past January. Um, they motioned to enter that alleged diary into evidence. And I'm using the word alleged because the diary 
remains unverified by the defense and the, the defense has that right to verify the authenticity of the diary and that hasn't been done. That's why I'm using that word. What was shocking about this motion, however, as it was explained to me by legal experts, is that the prosecution not only filed the motion, but they also admitted the entire diary as a PDF scan document for the entire world to view if they so choose. And then this was then leaked to the media, um, supposedly by the prosecution. And there's been some pretty, really horrible reports since then. I mean, I think any of us, right, that keep journals can't even imagine, right, being leaked to the entire world. Can you talk about how the community responded and Tortuguita's family? Because they haven't been able to get uh, their property back, correct? Yeah, I think one element that's shocking about this is apparently, you know, if this is Tortuguita's diary, that means the state's had it for, you know, over uh, almost 11 months now. Um there's been a refusal to have an independent investigation into their murder. Um, and there's a lot of um, holes in the police's story about what happened that day. Um, so I think for the family, it was a complete and utter shock. I did not speak to Belkis or Tort's brother, Daniel, directly, but I'm in contact with people close to them. Um, and in my article that you referenced, I interviewed uh, Tort's partner at the time of their death, Vienna Forrest, um, who, you know, I think some people, like, you know, people have never, you know, heard of this diary. That's not to say that, like, it's not theirs, and I'm not going to weigh in or pass any judgment on what's in the diary. I mean, the diary is the document that they submit has, like, a lot of beautiful writings that um, essentially detail, like, a vision of a world without police, um, or what we call abolition. You know, there's very, very personal traumas written about. I just, I, you know, it was, I've seen the state of Georgia do a lot of things, particularly in this movement, but this was like another layer of shock, honestly. I was actually going to bring up Tortuguita's partner, Vienna Forrest, who is also facing charges, um, Talk about what you detailed in, in your article, um, specifically about what they said about the criminalization of an ideology. Yeah, I think that Vienna worded very beautifully, and yeah. I am amazed by their composure in the face of this time and time again, of the blatant character assassination that prosecutors and the state have engaged in of Tortuguita. Um, but basically Vienna so eloquently said that, you know, you can't criminalize an ideology. And at the end of the day, you know, someone's private thoughts that they write in a journal don't have like much bearing on like who they are as much as who they demonstrated themselves to be like through their actions. And Vienna said that they remember tort based on, you know, how they showed up for their community and how loving and friendly and generous they were, not over some doodles in a journal that, you know, that they wrote one day as like a private thought that no one was ever intended to see. This, this criminalization of ideology, I mean, I think that that's the move we've seen the state 
play out, you know, over the the last many, many months um, with, you know, activists, including myself across the, the country watching because of the dangerous precedent um, that this is setting in terms of the criminalization of protests. Can you talk about what legal experts are worried that um, this could be a, a, a precedent for the criminalization of protest outside of Georgia? Yeah, I mean, I think what's happening in Georgia is deeply disturbing because what we are seeing in very high frequency and intensity is this automatic conflation of activists with terrorists, um, with movement building as a conspiracy of a quote-unquote criminal enterprise. I think what was actually the most alarming thing to me of the state's recent motion regarding towards alleged diary is that they begin in their motion to use the words movement and criminal enterprise interchangeably as if they're synonymous with one another. And I think like in these times when we're witnessing mass atrocities like a genocide in Gaza um, or, you know, stop this repression of activists in Stop Cop City um, and this repression of free speech as long as it contains some quote unquote political message we're kind of in a time where to be an activist is simply to be human living through all of these things, because to exist in these times, there's going to be a natural resistance to these levels of authoritarianism, these levels of violence that are happening upon innocent people. And then our government basically profiting off of these, you know, off of these crimes and this violence. Right. So what's happening here is like, I'm, you know, been interviewing RICO defendants for some coverage that we're doing at Mainline for a podcast series, but one defendant said something that has just stayed with me, and they said, it happened to me because it could happen to anybody. There's, like, nothing, like, in particular that has set these activists and humans aside from anyone else, except in many cases being in wrong place, wrong time. Um, I was writing an article about some repression, some persecution that's facing some pro-Palestine activists with charges involving property damage, which we have seen that in the movement. But there's this like knee-jerk reaction to always label property damage as violence. And I have to go back to a basic tenet of human rights activism saying like property damage is not violence and it will never outweigh the police violence or the violence of mass incarceration or the violence of a genocide. And yet it's persecuted disproportionately, right? That's right. Yeah, I often say windows don't cry and they can't die. Asia, Arnold, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you will come back. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. 
our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.